Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, as we um, complete our study in Genesis 3, and also these early chapters of Genesis under the uh, series that we've been doing, Foundations of the Faith. I read that People Magazine once conducted a survey of their readers on the subject of sin. And uh, so they ask all kinds of questions and ask for different ratings and things like that. And the results were reported under what they called a syndex. A syndex. And so various sin, sins in that syndex were given a numerical coefficient, so a little multiplier that sort of gave an indicator of how serious the, the uh, participants in the surveys viewed various sins. I think that it was meant to be somewhat of a joke and yet maybe somewhat serious. They were really trying to get at how people view uh, sin. And so uh, some things like murder, child abuse, uh, spying on one's country were actually rated amongst the worst of the sins by the participants. Things like smoking, cussing, and illegal videotaping were also listed as sins yet put uh, near the bottom. Maybe surprisingly uh, to most of us, maybe not to you, but it is to me, that uh, the participants actually ranked illegally parking in handicapped spots worse than some sexual sins. So there you go, syndex. Overall, People Magazine readers reported committing about 4.64 sins per month. So... There you go. Syndex. As we wrap up our study in Genesis 3, a very important section of Scripture, we're going to look at verses 14 through 24 and consider these things really in what I was telling Mike this morning, really a flyover, looking at the big, broad sweeps of Scripture and even this passage under consideration today. I think for most of us, Many times we consider the topic of sin fairly inconsequential. Uh, Maybe we do tend to make jokes about it or just uh, survey people and think that anyone's opinion is about as valid as another. Yet the Bible indicates this in this passage that we're studying. Consider this, that the world in which we live, racked by all sorts of sin and trouble, under what we call the fall, is the result of one man and woman, the first man and woman, committing one sin. One sin that we said last week many might consider, probably most of us would consider, somewhat inconsequential, maybe has a low coefficient in this index, that is eating fruit. But not just eating fruit, because doctors tell us we should eat fruit, right? It's a good thing. But eating of the fruit of a tree that God had forbidden them to eat of. And so really sin is deeper than the thing done. Really it's a heart issue. It's a disposition towards God. And even as Daryl was praying today that, that these things we might apply to our lives. So what I would say is that is a great impulse to come to the word of God and say, I want to apply this. I want to obey the word of God. But what I would say to you today is you don't have to apply this scripture. It already applies to you. It already applies. This is 
where we live. That's what we're going to find out. So let's read Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24 this morning. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, now remember, this is after they had fallen into temptation and sinned and eaten of that fruit. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any of the animal any other animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall deliver children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground because you were taken Uh, From it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out with his hand and take fruit also from the tree of life. And eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Today's message, I called it Outside of Eden. I want us to contemplate the descriptions given here in Genesis 3 of human life on the other side of sin or outside of Eden. Once Adam and Eve were ejected, evicted from the Garden of Eden, what does Genesis, what does God say life would be like? And I want you to listen to this. I want you to contemplate these things. I have five things here of what life is like outside of Eden. And I want you to consider, does this apply to the world in which we live? And I think it does. The first thing we see here and we should consider is that outside of Eden is where sin and spiritual waywardness leads us. Outside of Eden is where sin and spiritual waywardness leads us. The Bible is clear that sin, and sin is an action or an attitude or a nature that is opposed to God, that rebels against God, it doesn't jive with God's plans. God had set things up in the garden such that he was the ruler. Hey, listen, God is always the ruler. It's whether or not we are going to come under subjection to God. God is the ruler. Then Adam was to obey God. Adam was given a a helper, a wife named Eve. She was to follow the same guidelines to fall under the leadership of God and also her husband. And then the animals were to be under their subjection. And we see in the story of temptation and sin that that is all inverted, that they come out from under the rule of God. And that's what sin is. That's where sin leads us, is outside of Eden. Sin, when we reject God's rule over our life, it leads us away from God. It leads us outside of Eden, outside of the peace and the shalom and the harmony with God and the harmony with others that God has originally intended. Sin and spiritual waywardness lead us there. 
it is the natural result, is the only way that it can be. You know, I was thinking about this because it seems harsh. It seems harsh that God would say, get out. You have to leave. But honestly, that is what Adam and Eve chose, was to come out from under what Eden was all about, a place where God ruled and reigned and everything came under his leadership. I was thinking about parents and children. You know, parents, we build homes and we buy homes, we pay for homes, we work to pay for them, we set guidelines, we set rules and curfews, and, and in our homes we have sets of values, and we instruct our children to come under those values. We say, this is what this home is. You know, whether we totally speak these things or codify them or write them down or not, the fact is our homes are places where there is a rule, there is an order and there are things that we expect. There is morality and virtue and values, and we set the tone. And what generally happens? You know, really, homes are like a microcosm of the Bible. Usually what happens is our children rebel, right? <laughs> what happens is children become of, of the age where they begin to think about what their uh, value and what they believe and what they're going to do. And often what happens, not always, but often what happens is children say, I don't believe that. I don't buy into that. I, I don't agree with that. It's usually when they turn teenagers, right? Something about teenagers. And, 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 and what they're doing is they're beginning to express their own autonomy. And, and often what happens, unfortunately, is children say, I'm not going to abide by your rules. And I'll tell you where that leads, usually. It usually leads to the point where the children leave. Now, children are supposed to leave. They're supposed to leave, right? Yeah, a lot of times when they're 18, I made rules with my kids. I'm like, you have to leave at 18. You got to go somewhere. You can't stay here. All right? If you do, you're paying rent. And, and uh, uh, they go somewhere. They go out on their own. Sometimes, you know, they just say, I can't, I can't live under this anymore. I, I'm not going to be subject to your rules. And so they leave. Sometimes the parent has to say, you know what? If you are not going to follow these things, we can't live under the same house because we are in collision. It is just not possible. And so this happens in Eden where really Adam and Eve choose to come out from under God's rule. And so what does God say? Then you can't stay here because this is what this place is all about. And so Sin and spiritual waywardness led them out, pushed them out, but still I would say they chose to go out from Eden, but God made them. He said, you have already done this in your heart, and so now you need to go ahead and physically leave this place. And so God sends them outside of Eden because they had chosen to come out from under his rule. That is where sin leads away from God's peace and place of harmony. The next thing I want us to consider is outside of Eden, there is serious spiritual warfare. We looked at this a little bit last week when God speaks to the serpent and he, and he says, you know, between your offspring and the woman's offspring, there's going to be enmity. You're going to be enemies. That is now all of a sudden where man was peacefully ruling over the animals. Now there's going to be a, a little bit of friction. There's going to be enmity between man and the animals. But more than that, we said that this is a picture of the gospel of how there is spiritual warfare, how Satan is going to bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. 
spiritual warfare. We, there is a devil and there are dominions and powers and thrones that are opposed to God. There is spiritual battle in the heavenly places, though we're not often aware of it. We should be aware of it. That there are temptations that come that are from the pit of hell. And Satan, all through human history, will be seeking to do again what he did to Adam and Eve. That is to tempt, to ask people, to entice people to come out from under God's rule and to follow a different way. Spiritual battles. And the devil seeks to destroy, to kill, to, to devour, to bruise. All right? So there is spiritual Warfare going on in the heavenly places and in earthly places. There will be continual spiritual battle because of outside of Eden. You know, Satan, it's interesting, Satan through the serpent was allowed entry into Eden. But he was given the lowest place, I would say just a very short leash, okay? And he ends up tempting Adam and Eve into sin, Eve technically. And uh, then they come out. And they come out outside of Eden, Satan has a much longer leash, it appears. Outside of the garden, a much longer leash. And so the spiritual warfare is intense. Outside of Eden, there's spiritual warfare that is serious. It's a battle, folks. And we still face that today. Just know that. The next thing, outside of Eden, there is domestic difficulty of all kinds. Verse 16 really points this out. Man, I, I, we could do a sermon series just on this domestic difficulty of all kinds. What do we see here? Well, Eve, God speaks to her and says, in pain and difficulty and distress, you will give birth. And so this natural process of conceiving and bearing children, I don't know what becomes different. I don't know if birth weights increase. I don't know if, if cervical size change. I don't know how or why things get different. But he says, there's going to be this intense pain now in your fulfilling this womanly calling of bearing children. There's going to be pain. Hey, listen, folks, let me just say something to you. You ladies know this if you've had babies. Is this real? Come on, women, say amen. Is pain in childbirth real? Some of you are like, I don't know, I was knocked out. You know, you know, I heard about it. I heard about it. It is real. Hey, this is serious. And even now, this week, a family here in our church, had a new baby. And the difficulty still ongoing. You need to pray for that family. Pray for mother and baby and for father. This difficulty in now bearing children is very real. This pain and, and sorrow in it. It's just fraught with that. Something that should be the most joyous time of life is also, according to some women, the most painful thing that ever could happen. Not only that, now this relationship between husband and wife is going to be all messed up and, and twisted. Begins to talk about that, and, and again, this is interesting, a little bit hard to, to uh, translate. There are different ideas here, but God is speaking to Eve, and he says, you know, your desire is going to be for your husband. Now, that's a, that's a difficult phrase to, to translate. Here's what some people think that means, is God speaks about now the ravages of sin and how this is going to play out outside of Eden. is to say your desire is going to be for your husband. Some people say what this means is, you know, even though childbirth is going to be very painful and difficult, you're still going to have this impulse to want to have children. You're going to desire your husband. You know, it's a sexual impulse. And that's all that that means, even though there's pain in childbirth. Eh, I'm not sure that that's what that means. I don't think it's what it means. 
I think what's being pointed to here is there's going to be a friction and a twisting and, and, and a usurping and a passivity and all kinds of things going on between uh, uh, the husband and the wife and the order that God has intended. For instance, Bible scholar Susan Foe, now ladies, this is a woman uh, Bible scholar who says this, she argues that your desire for your husband is best translated as your desire will be to conquer your husband. In other words, she said there will be this impulse to undermine or usurp your husband's leadership because of indwelling sin. That we will not, either husbands or wives, be content with the God-given role, but that we will always be trying to get outside of it. All right? And so then it says to Eve, and now I see some of y'all nudging each other, right? I'm just saying, I know y'all know, y'all feel this, right? That the, the order is just not exactly clear and always followed. And, and he says to Eve, and he says, but he will rule over you. So you're, you're maybe you're trying to get a, a leg up and not come under his headship. And, and then the man's sinful tendency is going to be to rule over you. It's a, it's a harsh authoritarian rule, a dictatorship. You ladies are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, right? A dictatorship. See, instead of being a, a loving, sacrificial leader who takes responsibility, the man will tend to be maybe harsh, critical, uncaring, or self-serving rather than sacrificial as God had intended. And so we just know this in the, in the, in the parent and child, the mother-child, the husband-wife relationships, sin has invaded in every which way and messes things all up. And again, I would just say, does this apply? Is this real? Yes, it is real. So outside of Eden, there's domestic difficulty of all kinds. Outside of Eden, we see that work is fraught with thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. So now Adam is to be a gardener. He's supposed to cultivate the garden of God. And he's now booted out of that garden. And so instead of being an orchardist who goes and, and, and picks uh, fruit from trees and, and grows flowers, now he's going to dig around in the dirt and have to eat the plants of the field. Uh, and there's going to be thorns and thistles. The work is going to be fraught. With all sorts of frustrating things, painful things. You think about grabbing hold of thorns if you're a gardener and you get a handful of thorns. It's going to be frustrating. You're going to say, man, I'm trying to do this, but it always seems like it comes out like this. And no matter what your vocation, no matter what your work, no matter what career path, your educational level, it doesn't matter whether it is your paid job or maybe it's just your hobby. You farmers out there, don't you ever wonder, if you're not a full-time farmer, like, you don't get your pay from that. In fact, you spend all your pay on that. Do you ever just wonder, when the cows are dying or they're sick, why in the world am I doing this? Because it is fraught with futility and frustration. All of the different things that we do in our work, man, sin messes them up. You can all attest to that. Any of you work in a place where there is never any frustration Never any difficulties, never any relational friction, never anything that just causes you to smoke and curse. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's there. It is real. So outside of Eden, our work is fraught with thorns and thistles, futility and frustration. Finally, outside of Eden, there's no access to the tree of life. This is super interesting. If you think about now they're kicked out of Eden. And God puts cherubim, guardian angels, if you will, to guard access. It doesn't say to the garden, 
What is prevented there is access to the tree of life. Outside of Eden, there is no access to the tree of life. Now, listen, God had intended that man and woman could live forever. And the means in which it appears that God was going to make that happen is there's actually a tree was there. Now, some of you struggle with this idea that God ordains means or ways or things to do what he intends to do. So I would just say if God intended them to live forever, he made a way, and the way was this tree of life. And now they're outside of Eden, and the gate is blocked, and they can't go back in. And what they need in for, most of all, is access to the tree of life. And so what happens is death comes because they don't have access to that tree to the tree of life that God put there in the garden to sustain them in that place. He says, now, outside of Eden, Adam, you will die. You came from dust, and to dust you shall return. If you don't think this is serious, I would invite you to come with me this afternoon to a graveside where I'll be doing a memorial service where these very ideas and words will not just be pronounced, they will be deeply felt by a grieving family. When we say ashes to ashes and dust to dust. When a beloved son, husband, father has been reduced to an urn of ashes and laid to the dust, we wonder what in the world is going on. What I would say is that we deeply should feel this, that as God refuses to let them have access to the tree of life, now their bodies will not be sustained forever, but instead they will return to the dust as God drives them out. But it is interesting that God doesn't chop down the tree of life. He doesn't destroy the garden. He just guards access to it. He says, at this point, you've broken the covenant. And in this covenant, you can no longer come in to this place and eat of the tree of life. And all of this, I would just say, is somewhat depressing. But it's depressingly accurate, isn't it? This is life. This is where we live. This is the state of the world. Hey, can I tell you this, that humanity's biggest problem today is not uh, global warming or climate change. It is not economic slowdowns. It's not the price of gas and diesel, though that is very painful indeed. It is not the rising interest rates or inflation. The biggest problem of the world is not disease or the devil. The biggest problem that we face is a human heart that has rejected the rule of God. It is sinful rebellion against God and our somehow thinking that there's a better life out there. There is a better life out from under God and whereby we exercise the freedoms and we decide the course. We decide what we will do. We decide what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. We decide. You know what? The curse and life outside of Eden should teach us? Wrong answer. Life apart and outside of the rule of God in His gracious ways is painful, sorrowful, frustrating, disappointing, depressing, and not the way it seems like it should be. Every one of us have this story. We have this 
idea in our heart, no matter how much we look at all the bad things in the world, it's like, but there's hope. There is this glimmer of hope in us. Maybe something good can come from it. And that is the true story of the Bible. That there is good. That uh, account of God putting the cherubim there at the gates and not destroying the garden and the tree is somehow it's this idea that, hey, what might happen? Is it possible that maybe God would somehow allow, not by our own human strength, because you can't whip a cherubim. You think they're fat little babies with harps. Cherubim are raging warriors with flaming swords. You can't, you can't beat them. You can't overcome them and go to the tree. But maybe God would allow somehow. Maybe he's going to do something to allow access back to that. And hey folks, that is the story of the gospel of Jesus. The Christmas story is actually this great coming dawn of the fact that God is doing something. God is actually coming into a dark and depressing and diseased and dying world. And he's taking on human flesh to conquer sin, to conquer devil, to conquer death, and to redeem us from our sins, to buy us back, to bring us back into something greater. I think it's interesting that Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the way that you will gain access to life. I am the way that you, and the only way, that you can come in to a relationship with God, have your sins forgiven, and gain access to eternal life. Jesus is the way. But in order for us to come back, in order for us to come back into that place where there is harmony with God and all is made new, and we have access to the tree of life, something has to change. The something that has to change is the something that went wrong. It is we need to change our minds about where good is found, where hope is found, where life is found. We need to change our minds about sin and rebellion and somehow quit thinking that it's going to lead to good when everything around us, around us says otherwise. We need to come to see that the only way to peace and harmony and shalom and good and life is to come under God's rule. And so the Bible talks about that as repentance, as a changing our mind about God and about sin and turning from sin. And we turn to the way that God has provided, and that way is Jesus Christ. He calls us to change our minds, to change our hearts, to come back to him. I, I couldn't help but think of the prodigal son story all through preparing this message. The prodigal son the story that Jesus told about this son who comes to the father and says, just give me my inheritance. I want out of here. And the father graciously does this. Here you go. Here's your share. And he goes on his way. And he squanders his possessions on wild living and women and parties. And then it's all spent. And I love in that story, it says, and he came to his senses. When he's there eating worse than the pigs, he's in this sloppy, filthy place. And all of a sudden he remembers, I have a father whose servants live far better than that. Maybe I, and he doesn't do it proudly or expecting, and he just says, maybe if I go back to my father, he would let me just be a servant in his house. 
And he comes back. He's coming up the road and the father says is looking and he sees him a long way off. The father is looking and he embraces him with open arms and makes him more than a servant. He makes him a son. He elevates him back. Couldn't help but think about that. That is a picture of the story of the Bible. It's a picture of God, what God wants to do in your life. When you recognize where your sin has led you, he wants you to come back. And the road, the gate, the way back to the Father is through Jesus Christ, the Son. I want to finish up inviting you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22 and show you how at the end of the Bible really is the culmination of what God is doing in this redeeming work. And it's the great and glorious hope that we have of a new creation, a new heaven and earth, a new city coming down from God and how it is the undoing of the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and of the fall. So I'm just going to read Revelation 22, 1 through 4. It's a beautiful glimpse of the final state of all of the redeemed before God. That is, hey, listen to this. If you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, what can you expect that God is doing in your life? What is he going to do to make everything right again? Well, Revelation 21 and 2 tells us that story, but let's just hone in on verses 1 through 4 of this final statement, and then I'll pick out a couple of things I want you to notice. It says, and he showed me. This is the, now listen, this is the new Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and earth, what we would just think of as the final state of heaven, so to speak. It says, and he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its streets. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Let me just pick out and show you four key characteristics of this final blessed state when God is making all things new for those who are saved. Number one, in that place, there is a centrality of God's rule and of the reign of Jesus. There are thrones. The very centerpiece, he says, there is this flowing river of the water of life, and you look up that river and up its banks and the beautiful glimmering streams, and it causes your eye to move to this glorious sight of the throne of God and of the Lamb. There is no chance that there are other thrones or dominions or powers that will rule in heaven, for God and the, His Lamb are on their throne, ruling and reigning. He is the undisputed ruler of heaven. There is no other, only God and His Lamb, Jesus Christ. Number two, there is a tree of life, actually many trees of life. It's one, it appears that now the tree of life has been bred up and cultivated and propagated by God himself. And it says these trees, this tree of life is on both sides of the river and every month producing its fruit. A different kind of fruit for every month. So folks, here is the tree of life. That sustaining means by which God gives us eternal life there it is on both sides of the river producing fruit every month for us to partake of there will be no food shortages there 
It's there and it fills and lines these beautiful banks of that heavenly place. Number three, it says the curse of sin is lifted. Several times in Genesis 3, God speaks a curse. Cursed is the serpent. Cursed is the ground by which you work. Full of futility and frustration, God lifts that. He reverses the curse. There is no curse there in that heavenly place. And so these things that bring us down and seem to ruin or at least taint every good thing, all of those things have been lifted and cast away. And number four, there in that place are the inhabitants of heaven. They are those who are sealed permanently. It says their name is, his name is on their forehead and they serve God perfectly. In other words, and again, can't go into much detail here, there is no chance that you are going to fall away from God's rule in heaven. You are sealed. You are sealed. And the inhabitants of that place perfectly serve God. There is this perfect relationship where we will come under God exactly and fulfill the role that he's given us to do. No chance of trying to usurp or rebel against him in that place. Now, how does that happen? That's a discussion for another day. I don't really know for sure. I have my ideas. But you know, I was thinking about this. I will just say this. You can talk all you want about something to somebody. You can tell your kids all you want. Don't touch that. It's hot. But until they touch it and get a burn, they don't really fully appreciate what that means. But I tell you what. You watch a kid go touch a hot thing one time after being told not to, and they get a scalding burn. Now, they may touch something hot again. They may disobey again, but they will know exactly. And I would just say, though we're still fallen, you know, we still do stupid things, even though it continues to give bad results. I think that once we get to heaven, when we get to this place, we will have walked through a life that has been so full of frustration, futility, sickness, and death that when we get to that place and we see things clearly and as they are there would be no possible way that we ever want to go back outside of God's Eden why would I ever want to go back to that when I have this and in that place all of the things that went down and wayward and became fallen in Genesis chapter 3, are made new. Don't you want that? Hey, are there good things in this life? Yes. But they all have tentacles and taintedness of sin. The good things are a foretaste. The old song says, glory divine. When God makes all things new. I want you to be there. You will want to be there. How do you get there? Change your mind. Change your mind about where the good life is. Turn from sin. Trust that God is the rightful ruler. He is the only place where you will ever find good and peace and eternal joy. And come to him by the way, the gate. Jesus. Would you bow with me?
we just come into this time of reflection and seeking to apply the message. Seeking to let the Word of God sink into our hearts and lives. Just want to ask you this question, where are you? Where is your citizenship? Where is your heart? Is your heart fully with God? Have you turned from your sin, trusted Jesus Christ? Or are you still outside of Eden in your heart? Come to Jesus. Tell God that you're sorry for your sin, that you acknowledge that you have fallen away from Him, that you have drifted from His ways, that you have lived a life that is worthy of death. But you want life. You want His mercy. You want to come back to the Father through Jesus the Son. You tell Him that in your heart. The Bible says that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's you. That's me. When we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead, you can be saved. Would you turn to Him today? Turn to Him by faith. Maybe you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, but... Sin has come back into your life. You've accepted some things. You've done things. Maybe you're living in a pattern right now of sinfulness. 1 John says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Come back into the light, into a pure walk with your Savior. You can do that today. You can leave this place refreshed revived and renewed in your spirit. If you have a decision to make today, if you'd like to come and pray, the altar is open in this time of response. today we thank you that you are gracious that you love us that you've given us the mercy of showing us what life apart from you is really like and that you open the gate, you open the door back through Jesus so today we rejoice we cling to the hope that we have in Christ the hope that we have by his blood by His love. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.